The world of blood transfusion has a storied past. Let me give you a bit of a history lesson. In 1492, the first recorded attempt at a blood transfusion took place. The blood of three 10-year-old boys was infused by mouth into Pope Innocent VIII. Gives new meaning to mouth pipetting, eh? The boys and the Pope died. In 1628, British physician Harvey Williams discovered how blood circulates, giving a better understanding to transfusion research. In 1665, the first successful transfusion takes place when Richard Lower transfuses blood between dogs. Quickly after that, in 1667, the first transfusion using humans is recorded, when several attempts of sheep-to-human transfusions occur in France and England. I'm not sure what was happening in the 1700s, but it wasn't until 1818 when British obstetrician and physiologist James Blundell performed the first recorded human-to-human blood transfusion. He injected a patient suffering from internal bleeding with 12 to 14 ounces of blood from several donors. Unfortunately, the patient did die after initially showing some improvement. But it's not all bad news. From 1825 to 1830, Blundell conducted 10 blood transfusions, of which five were successful. It wasn't until the discovery of the first three human blood groups in 1901 by Austrian physician Karl Landsteiner that transfusions became more successful. All this trial and error led to the success we see today, but it doesn't mean we aren't still learning and discovering more ways to improve this life-saving technique. Canada has a national system that not only collects and distributes blood and blood products, but continuously researches it. Let's take a look at that system and how it keeps Canadians safe. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. Within my research laboratory, we really have uh, have two different areas that, of inquiry that we're interested in. One is really trying to understand how can we make changes that will allow us to provide the best quality blood products for patients and have products that are the most consistent that they possibly can be so that if a, if a transfusion is ordered, there's a, a great uh, level of comfort in the part of the of the clinicians and the and the blood bank folks who who handle these products that that we know that they're they're good quality that the transfusion is going to be as effective as it can be for the patients. That's the voice of Dr. Dana Devine. When I wanted to learn more about blood research, I went straight to the experts at the Canadian Blood Services or CBS. Dana is the chief scientist at CBS and her role is twofold. One aspect of her job is providing strategic leadership to CBS in the areas of science, technology, and innovation. She helps the organization create the best policy development and decision-making in those areas. The other part of her job is being an active research scientist, so she also runs a research laboratory. She told me that in the lab, they were trying to push the boundaries forward and create new products to fix problems for the Canadian blood system sounds a bit like the efforts of those early scientists from the 1800s. Sort of. So, I have the opportunity to speak with the chief scientist at CBS. 
Of course, my first question is, what are you working on? A lot of our research is focused in in how to store cells in plastic bags so they are of better quality during the course of the storage period, and also to understand about the contribution that the donor makes. So every blood product is heavily influenced by the individual that it came from. And so we're very interested in understanding how do we understand those donor effects in order to uh, make sure that we know which blood products are going to be high quality and which ones might not be, in which case we don't want to make that product in the first place. So that's, that's one area that we do quite a bit of research in. And then the other area is really looking at at new kinds of blood products, or maybe not brand new, but renewed anyway. And they, these are things that we don't currently have in routine practice in Canada, but we're looking to bring them in for various reasons. Can I admit that when I asked that question, I was sort of expecting, okay, maybe hoping her answer was along the lines of fake blood. You hear it in mainstream media that the creation of fake blood is in the works and could revolutionize our blood system. Dana was kind enough to fill me in on where we're at with that research. Someday we we might see that blood is, is either fully synthetic or is grown in red cells or grown in a laboratory. But right now, while we know that that science can do some of that, we can't we can't make those products with in the volume of red cells that are required for for treatment of patients in the country, and we certainly can't do it in a way where, where it's at all cost-effective. So there's, there's a lot of research that needs to be done in the engineering world to figure out how to make cell cultures less expensive and before we could ever have a fully synthetic or at least grown in a, in a, in a bioreactor type of blood product. Okay, so CBS is not putting a lot of their research efforts into true blood. I get it. What I did learn about was some research into making some old techniques new again. Don't worry, no mouth pipetting or anything like that. Well, there's a real interest in our industry right now in bringing back the idea that that you would transfuse whole blood. So um, it wouldn't exactly be like back to the days of, of glass bottles that you see on mash reruns, but these this would be a product that we had taken the white blood cells out of but that it would be a whole blood uh, product that could be used, particularly in trauma settings. So uh, often in the in the treatment of trauma patients, what the blood bank will do is they'll add back together red cells, plasma, and platelets. And the question arises, well, maybe it would be better not to take those those apart from the whole blood donation in the first place and just be able to have a product that could be used as is that already had all that material in it. So we're doing some research looking at at aspects of, of whole blood, of kind of going back to what was done before the 1970s when, when blood component therapy first got developed. Whole blood transfusion stopped being the norm in the early 70s. Since then, transfusions are commonly done through components. It's thought that blood component therapy is more efficient and an overall better use of the blood products which are not overly easy to come by. Knowing this, I asked Dana what the benefits would be to whole blood use. Right now what happens is if somebody say say you're, you know, you're in a car wreck on the Trans Canada and you get whipped into the local trauma hospital and 
you know, they, they need to start transfusing you right away. So the first thing they do is they give you red cells and then they'll give you some platelets. Uh, sorry, then they'll give you some plasma usually. And then they may or may not give you some platelets. And what you're actually finding it or what the, at least some of the clinical data are suggesting is that the, the order in which you get those is important. And the fact that people traditionally go red cells, plasma platelets may not be the best order for the recipient. So you may not get the best, uh, the best outcome for the patient. And so the, the problem always becomes that you have too much volume and you can't get, you can't get all these things back into the person fast enough. So part of the thinking around whole blood was that if you've already mixed them all together, you know, but they basically are the same way they are in the circulation with a little bit of anticoagulant around and no white blood cells they've been taken out. Then you don't have to worry about getting all the red cells in before you can start giving some plasma, before you can give the platelets. So there's a little bit of everything going in at the same time. And the thinking is that this provides better hemostasis for the patient. Whole blood transfusions are not the normal practice currently. But it got me thinking about how some of this research goes from concept to implementation. I asked about any research that has since been developed into new protocols on a national level. It's a combination of choosing better products and, and it's also understanding how the the products that you're getting may change your inventory practice. So, for example, um, this past August, we, we changed uh, the conditions for storing platelets from a five-day outdate to a seven-day outdate by having you know, done enough research to, to demonstrate that that was a safe practice. And so the host, that meant that the hospitals now had some extra time on every unit of platelets that was issued to them. And so we've seen the wastage rates across the system decrease as a result of that. So that, that's really good news because that means that that uh, you know, it means that the platelet inventory is actually going more toward patients and less toward the garbage can. This is an interesting change, adding two days to the usage of products. It would likely have a large impact on protocols and policies within the transfusion medicine lab. That's one thing we haven't touched on yet. While new research finds safer, more efficient, and effective ways to treat patients, how do these changes affect the people who work in these labs? In speaking with Dana, I recognize that all this research results in change on the ground, in the blood banks and the transfusion medicine labs. So I asked around to see how this all happens. And that's when I was directed to Rob Romans. Rob is the Associate Director, Hospital Account Management with Canadian Blood Services. And with his hospital liaison team, they are the eyes on the ground with hospitals who use CBS. They relay information from CBS to the hospital customers, and vice versa. By being in direct contact with the people who use the products, they get firsthand information on the challenges and concerns. I'll let Rob explain a bit about what his team's interactions are like. So the types of individuals that we most commonly interact with are the transfusion service technical and managerial staff, and we also interact with the transfusion um, service medical staff as well. And during some of our hospital site visits, um, there may actually be transfusion safety officers present, uh, nurse educators, 
or risk managers in some cases will also join the meeting. And from the CBS side of the table, uh, we do invite all of our hospital medical, uh, sorry, all of our Canadian Blood Services medical directors to participate in those meetings as well. When he was describing this, it seems very hands-on to me. The whole concept of the liaison specialist team is to ensure good communication to and from the CBS, making sure that whatever changes are implemented go as smoothly as possible. Then I realized the scope of what being hands-on meant to hospitals all over Canada. Rob said there were seven members on his liaison team. Only seven people for all of Canada. How does that work? I asked Rob how they were able to meet with everyone. A lot of it depends on the size of the hospital customer and their particular wants and needs. So for some of our larger hospital customers, it may be more than once a year. For the majority of our hospital customers, the site visit or for the more distant ones, uh, for example, the folks up in Whitehorse or other parts of um, northern Canada, costs are prohibitive for travel. So uh, for those types of interactions, we generally conduct those through the telephone or through a video conference. So generally, I would say our commitment is to have some type of interaction with the vast majority of our hospital customers hospital customers, at least once a year. So at least once a year, his team gets out to the transfusion labs and hospitals across the country. This doesn't just happen when they're rolling out a new directive or a new product. Rob explained to me that they like to keep contact with them to always have a good understanding of what their hospital customers need, or really just to keep the lines of communication open. This is important because when there is something new that comes out, they want to ensure that their customers are listening. He also explained that while they mostly meet with the transfusion lab staff, they realize that other hospital staff can be directly impacted by changes, like nurses, for example. Here, Rob describes how a change gets communicated. If we introduce a new product, for example, or slightly modify one of the blood products that we currently manufacture and provide, uh, we will have to, of course, let our hospital customers know uh, that that product will be coming at some point in the future. So our primary method for communicating those process or policy changes uh, to hospital customers is called the hospital customer letter, uh, where we will describe the change, why the change is going to occur, and our target date for implementation. And the other important thing that we always make sure is in there in the customer letter are any actions that are required on the part of the hospital. So, for example, if we are introducing a new blood component, blood components all have unique identifier numbers uh, that are provided through the International Society of Blood Transfusion, and the codes are called ISBT-128. So if there are new products coming, we have to let hospitals know so that the, they can set up their laboratory information systems to be able to receive these new blood products. And it involves entering the product code into the system so that they will be able to receive it. Um, I guess the other thing that goes hand in hand with that, depending on the nature of the change, 
We'll also include links in the customer letter to any educational materials. And in some cases, we also offer if the hospital would like an actual um, 20, 30, 45 minute education session that our hospital liaison specialists will make themselves available and actually do kind of a lunch and learn type scenario to take the hospital through the upcoming change. And it, usually it's a an abbreviated version, if you will, of the information that was provided in the customer letter. And certainly for any of our more significant changes that are happening at Canadian Blood Services, we, we make those in-hospital education sessions a part of that implementation change. It's a multi-pronged approach to communication. There are in-hospital visits, education sessions, and a letter. To me, the idea of getting all these blood banks onto a new product, uh, new codes, or new policies seems like a huge and daunting task. Yet, CBS seems to have a formula that is working well. It's also a two-way street. They are looking for hospital input on these changes as well. I'm sure (laughs) some of our hospital customers may feel that we are doing things to them. Um, we do go to great lengths to try to make sure that we are doing it, it, making changes in a collaborative manner, uh, that we're gathering their feedback. Often before an implementation will even occur, we'll often put out some floaters uh, with key hospital customers to say, we're thinking about doing X. What would that mean for you? And we'll gather some feedback. We, we do that on a frequent basis as well. And that helps us with our planning and our implementations. It's this feedback that helps in planning the rollout. When I asked Rob how long something might take from initial notice through the customer letter to implementation, he said maybe three to four months. And that's for something he considered a significant change. I'm impressed. He did make a point in saying that implementation may take months but the internal process at CBS starts years in advance. I want to go back to some of the research and how something like the extended shelf life of platelets gets rolled out into practice. While an organized process, it's a bit complicated too. A lot of changes, as as I say, for internally, and a lot of changes for hospital customers as well. Initially, when we were getting ready to implement uh, the extended shelf life platelets, everyone assumed that since we were going from a five-day expiry to a seven-day expiry, that they would automatically get an additional two days on added to the expiry date of the product. And initially, yep, that's what it would look like. But in fact, because we're actually holding the product for 36 hours instead of 24 before we take our sample to detect bacteria and we're adding the six-hour hold, we actually eat into that extended shelf life platelet a bit. But when you look at the incremental change in patient safety as a result of that, we come out much further ahead uh, as far from a patient safety perspective. So hospitals get a product that they're able to keep on their shelf for a longer period of time. 
And more importantly, those products uh, have a much safer profile when it comes to bacterial uh, contamination. Something like platelet life and hold periods for bacteria detection are just some of the more recent changes to blood processing. Both of these things have a direct impact on patient care. I would think, for that reason, they would be fairly easy cells. Let's take a look at the receiving end of the situation. Let's talk to someone in the lab. It is something that they've been working on for quite a while. Um, I believe here in Quebec had seven-day platelets out before blood services did. But um, it's some, that was a quality uh, supply initiative that CBS brought forward, recognizing that it would benefit them and us in terms of a more stable supply. Mm-hmm. And so there was no, no controversy or uh, concerns about that at all. It was just going to be a good thing that uh, they did, and we were happy to take advantage of. That's Chad Milford. He's a transfusion technologist in Whitehorse, Yukon. In that clip, he was telling me about the changes to the platelet shelf life last August. As I suspected, it wasn't a controversial change, so getting hospital staff on board was not an issue. Like he said, they were happy to take advantage of it. Part of why I wanted to talk to Chad was to get a sense of how the information transfer comes from CBS into the lab. I wanted someone in the field. The other reason was that Chad works in a remote area. His location alone is a challenge. And as Rob mentioned, it's those customers that they have the most difficulty in getting in-person contact on a regular basis. So I guess I wanted to get his take on implementing changes from CBS and the specific challenges they face in northern regions when dealing with blood and blood products. Well, our biggest challenge um, being relatively isolated is um, logistics of shipment. There's basically one flight per day that we can get blood shipped up to us on, and so we have to really manage our inventory quite closely so that we're not excessively stocked, but at the same time, we have to be able to handle any emergency that comes in. So... That's our biggest challenge is just making sure we have enough blood on the shelf, but not too much. And we've been very fortunate over the last decade or so to participate in the British Columbia redistribution program so that as blood approaches its expiry date, we can send it to St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver where it will be transfused rather than letting it update here. One of the main responsibilities of Blood Bank is inventory, making sure there is enough making sure the products are being used. Now add in the stress of having any extra inventory, a plane right away. Chad mentions the redistribution program they use in order to make use of all the products they have. There are systems in place to help with inventory. Chad estimated that the expiry dates of red blood cells in the BC-Yukon area is below 1%, meaning that less than 1% of red blood cells expire mainly due to initiatives like the redistribution program. In my discussion with Chad, I asked him about other changes from CBS that may not have been met with as much, let's say, acceptance. Just last, well, over the past year across the country, but in our region, um, back in March of 17, 
I believe it was, CVS started using new insulated shipping containers. So these are uh, phase change materials that uh, hold the temperature of the component they're shipping at a much uh, more efficient way. And so that completely changed the boxes that they're shipping and the weight of the boxes, the size of the boxes, and that had big implications for the ergonomics of the receiving hospitals, the people lifting the boxes and carrying them, and and as well as storage of these empty boxes after the products have been received and getting them back to CVS. So those were challenges that every hospital faced with these new shipping containers. And in BC, as I mentioned earlier about the distribution program, redistribution, we had used the CBS boxes, just the styrofoam boxes with a cardboard outer wrap for our redistribution. But these new base change materials, you need very specialized equipment to condition those plates and make them at the right temperature. And so we were no longer able to use the CBS boxes for shipping blood back down to like St. Paul's. And so we had to find an alternative plan where we bought a bunch of the old CDS boxes, I think they actually gave them to us, and uh, we're using them, but now we have two types of boxes to deal with at the hospital and store and ship back and forth across the country. So that one, while we recognize the value of receiving our products at a more stable temperature, it did create problems or challenges at the hospital level that um, we communicated back to CBS and, and they did work with us on that redistribution piece as much as possible. I asked Rob about this particular situation and how they were able to help this customer with their unique challenge. Certainly hospital transfusion services have space constraints and in this particular case that you described, we introduced new blood shipping boxes that had a much better profile for maintaining the appropriate temperature of the blood component during its shipment to the hospital customer. And in some cases, some of the boxes are slightly larger than the ones we were using previously. So that created for some of our hospital customers the challenge of storing the empty boxes before they could be returned to Canadian Blood Services. And in some cases, folks had to either stack them a little differently or discuss with their local distribution site, um, perhaps a more frequent pickup of the empty boxes. So it, it was a lot of um, individualized, designed uh, solutions, if you will, to that particular problem. Understandably, not every change is going to work for every location. There are too many variations. But it sounds like they're doing what they can to mitigate issues before implementation, or even afterwards. It's an iterative process. We do our utmost to anticipate what the impacts are going to be to our hospital customers. And in spite of our best efforts and 
Um, our hospital liaison team are involved on the, all the working groups whenever a new implementation is being planned. Uh, they offer feedback on what they see as potential uh, challenges that we may have to overcome. And in spite of all of that, we do sometimes run up against, uh, oh, mm, yeah, we didn't quite anticipate that scenario for that particular hospital. And as you say, it then leads to the back and forth to, okay, what can we do to tweak this so that it works for everybody? CBS understands the variations and understands that tweaks have to be made along the way. I think this example demonstrates more the back and forth communication that CBS tries to initiate with its customers. When I started this episode, I took a look back at where transfusion medicine came from and where we are now. But I wanted to get a bit of an idea of where it's going. While CBS has a research mandate and they are making sure the supply is safe and quality is assured, I wanted the crystal ball vision. Who better to know this industry than the practitioners themselves? I asked Chad what he was looking forward to in the future of transfusion medicine. I've been really excited to learn about some of the frontiers that are being pushed in terms of uh, pathogen inactivation and uh, antigenic stripping of blood products so that there's less reactions and less adverse outcomes associated with transfusions. So those are really exciting. And in the bigger picture, there's this concept of big data. And by that, I'm talking about the amalgamation of various databases and being able to draw much more robust conclusions around treatments and public health initiatives and cancer screening and cancer treatments on a population scale and just mining that data for improvements that can be made. That's that's where I think the biggest, most dramatic improvements in healthcare are going to be made. Our transfusion medicine professionals are the ones on the ground and they have the knowledge about the products and inventory. CBS is this overarching entity that provides the research, support, and directives to keep the system functioning. It's the synergy between these two that make it all work. Here's what Dana says about CBS. We want to always be seen as Canada as one of the world leaders in, in transfusion medicine. We, we came through a really horrible experience with our tainted blood scandal, and I think we came out of it. We're in a very good space, and we want to retain that, that cutting-edge um, approach to, to what we provide for Canadians. And here's Rob's thoughts on the connection between CBS and those working in the labs. We want to be seen as a partner in the blood system, in Canada's blood system. We're not, we are a monopoly in Canada for outside of Quebec, but we want to work collaboratively and cooperatively with all of our hospital customers to come up with solutions that meet everybody's needs, not just uh, one stakeholder in the blood system. The constant interaction CBS has with transfusion labs across the country is to ensure that the lines of communication are open, both ways. They are listening as much as they are talking. This will help future research and assist in creating solutions to challenges, big or small. 
While we are far beyond the days of animal-to-human transfusions, we are still learning and making adjustments along the way. It's good to know that when it comes to our blood system, communication is front and center. The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers, and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Editorial and editing support by Erica Now. For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, visit our website at podcast.csmls.org. If you're in the medical laboratory field, you'll want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you'll earn a certificate verifying professional development hours by listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter at CSMLS or Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash CSMLS. Thanks for listening.